The first thing to be learned as a Christian, the first thing that you must know is that you know nothing. Sometimes that takes a lot of years. It took me 18 years walking with Christ before I came to the conclusion that I knew nothing about the Christian life. We come to the Christian life with the kingdom of men in our minds, and Jesus communicates the kingdom of heaven. That's a whole new and different perspective, completely different. When Jesus chose his first four disciples, he immediately took them on a tour, you'll see in a moment, of Galilee, and the things that he taught them He taught them without saying a word. Oswald Chambers, in a piece entitled, Working Among Sick Souls, writes this. My brother or sister, if you are a worker for Jesus Christ, he will open your eyes wide to the fact that sin and misery and anguish are not imaginary. They are real. Anguish is as real as joy. Fired, jangled, and tortured nerves are as real as nerves that are in order. Luther, of which we sang that incredible hymn this morning, wrote this toward the end of his life. I am utterly weary of life. I pray the Lord will come forthwith and carry me home. Let him come from above with all of his last judgment. I will stretch out my neck and the thunder will burst forth and I shall finally be at rest. And having the necklace of the white agates around his neck, which was that which was a pastor or priest, he added this, O God, grant that it may come without delay. I would would sooner eat up this necklace today for the judgment to come tomorrow. A lady was sitting with him at lunch, and Luther was dining with her, and, she, and he said to him, Doctor, I wish you may live 40 more years. Madam, he replied, rather than live 40 years more, I would give up my chance for paradise. Golf, in his writings in 1824, wrote this, I will say nothing against the course of my existence, but at the bottom of which has been nothing but pain and burden, and I can afford that during the whole of my 75 years, I have not had four weeks of genuine well-being. It has been the perpetual rolling of a rock that must rise up again and again. Robert Louis Stevenson said that, Three hours out of every five, he was insane with misery. John Stuart Mill said that life was not worth living after you were a boy. This is the misery and pain that the Christian life does not look away from. It looks straight on. And it has an answer. Chambers goes on and tells the Christian worker, the first thing you must understand is you do not understand people. You don't even understand yourself. He encourages the worker to rely deeply on the Holy Spirit. We come, we come to life with a text and with a verse and with a plan and with a strategy. And we run into people of all sorts and all that flies out the window. 
rely completely on the Holy Spirit when dealing with others, and then give them, give them Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can solve it. He's the only one that can save us from sin. He's the only one that can redeem and straighten out the twisted life. Look with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. He calls his four disciples and immediately leaves for Galilee. Now I'm going to give you a couple shots of Galilee so you can kind of see what it looks like the pasture lands and the hillsides they went. There's the Sea of Galilee in the distance. There, there's some more countryside. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, there were 204 villages throughout Galilee. Galilee's about 50 miles long, 20 miles wide, 204 villages, nine flourishing villages on the Sea of Galilee, which you see there in the background. None of these villages had less than 15,000 people. So don't think he walked into these villages and there were 150 people. No less than 15,000 people in every village that he went into. This was a densely populated Galilee. And it was this for that reason. Because it was flourished with vegetation. Man, you could grow anything in the soil in Galilee. Fish abundant in the sea. People flocked. But I need to let you know that the kind of people that lived there were not strictly a Jewish territory. This was Galilee of the Gentiles. They were flooding in from everywhere with a, a diverse population. Let me write, read to you what Barclay writes about Galilee. It's people were of a certain kind. Of all parts of Palestine, Galilee was most open to new ideas. Josephus says of the Galileans, they are every, ever fond of innovations and by nature disposed to changes and they delight in seditions. Interesting. They were ever ready to follow a leader and to begin the, an insurrection. They were notoriously quick in temper and given to quarreling. Yet withal, they were a very chivalrous people. The Galileans, wrote Josephus, have never been destitute of courage. Cowardice was never a characteristic of a Galilean. The inborn characteristics of the Galileans were such as to make them the most fertile ground for a new gospel to be preached to them. And Jesus takes his four men out of strictly Jewish territory into this densely cross-population of all sorts of people groups. That's important to mark because you have Jews following Jesus, Peter, James, John, Andrew, who have a strictly Gentile mentality. Well, look at verse 23. Notice he says, and he went throughout all Galilee. Notice it does not say, and they went. His disciples are with him, at least the four, and yet it does not say that they went. It says that he went. I take that to mean they followed him begrudgingly. I also take that to mean that his, his stance toward taking them was be quiet and watch. 
Because if you're chosen by a rabbi, that's a great honor. And these men had probably thoughts and ideas of what they wanted to contribute to the ministry of Jesus. That's all of our way, isn't it? So valuable that God has saved me because he can do so much through me. He's got to win. He's got to knock the wind out of us to use us at all. He's got to gut us of all self-importance in order to begin to use us. And so it says, and he went up into Galilee. Notice what he was doing. He was teaching in their synagogues. Now, what's a synagogue? It's a small building. It's not very big. You could probably fit two or three synagogues in this building. Every Jewish town had them, and they were more than just church. They were the religious center and social center of the town itself. The synagogues came to be as a result of the captivity up in, up in Babylon years before. What happened was Nebuchadnezzar came down and destroyed the temple. Before the temple was destroyed, synagogues weren't even thought of or known of. But with the temple, the one, watch this, with the one worship place destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Jews up in Babylon had to think of something to keep their religious teachings alive. And so they began the practice of these synagogues. And when the Jews came back to the land, the temple was not rebuilt again, and so they continued the process of synagogues. Now, why is that important? Synagogues came to be because they had no temple to go to to meet with God. It had been destroyed by men. But what God, men could not destroy was the temple of God himself and the person of Jesus Christ who now came to the synagogue. You see what God did in coming to the synagogue? He brought the temple with him. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. No longer is there a place to meet, to meet with God. It's the person of Jesus Christ wherever he shows up. That's the temple. And the temple now comes to the synagogue, the very thing that was built because the temple was not there. So he was teaching. Notice what else he was doing. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The King James has it. He was preaching. He was proclaiming. Now, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? Preaching expl teaching explains. Preaching proclaims. Preaching is a declaration of unalterable truth that is not up for a vote or a debate. It is a decl declaration of this which is rock solid that you don't choose, well, you can choose to avoid it, but you will hit it later on. It is a proclamation that is, that is information outside of our brains given to us that are things that are true from God. I'll give you a couple of things. We preach dogmatically from the scripture. There is a heaven and there is a hell. There is a place that Christians, believers in Christ, go to when they die. It's called heaven. There is a place that lost people go to, and it's called hell. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. I, I can't explain that. 
How can a man 2,000 years ago bleeding on a cross make any difference in my life? That is my redemption in my life now. I preach that to you, that he rose from the dead. How many of you were there when it happened? Rick, you're older than I think. How many of you know it happened? Because this is truth that is not up for discussion and debate. It is truth that we declare to be true. It is like the two night, it is like the two lights in the night on the rough ocean. They were heading toward one another. And the one light signaled, we're moving toward each other, move away. And the other light said, signaled back, no, you move away. The first signal said, the first light said, signal back said, I am a huge ocean freighter. You move to the left. The other light signaled back, I am a lighthouse. You move. That is truth. You're either going to embrace it or find it out later in the judgment when you have rejected it. Jesus preached in these synagogues and he preached with authority. These things are true. Whether we believe them or not, they are what we proclaim. Notice he did not proclaim himself as the king. I thought he might have. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't preach and try to convince them through a well-seasoned address that he is now king and I want you to bow down to me. He doesn't do that. He preaches the good news that there is an authority from heaven and there is a whole new order of things coming because it's not about promoting himself as king. It's about presenting the opportunity to join the kingdom where he is king. Let's read on. Because talking is not all he did. Notice in healing every disease. Notice there's words that are repeated. When you see those in scriptures, take notice of them. Healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his flame... His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and they came out of the woodwork. Like turkey vultures to a dead carcass, they just showed up. They flooded in. Can you imagine the church services that Jesus had in these synagogues and in these towns? You talk about a sorry lot. You talk about the four disciples stepping back and thinking, what in the world have we gotten into? You're ministering to them? They've got problems. That's exactly who Jesus came to save. People that are sick, people that are diseased, the people that through sin are so paralyzed they see no way out. And Jesus is there in the mix of them. And they're overrunning him and he's turning no one away. Can you imagine standing in that line for two hours? You finally get there and he closes shop. I'll see you tomorrow. 
No way, man. He reaches out and he touches. And I'm telling you, when he heals the leprosy, it's like baby skin again. When he heals those who are lame, they dance and run like Olympic champions. You talk about excitement. You talk about the masses coming. Uh, I shot my first armadillo last Sunday night. Got him in a cage, drug him out, popped him with a gun. I was so excited. I came in the house. I came in the house. I said, Karen, no, Justin. I said, Karen, I killed him. She looked at me. She says, you know, I think there's probably millions of them out there in the woods. It's like a Debbie Downer moment. She's like, oh, God. You heal one, you shoot one, and they just, they just keep coming. You heal one, and they just keep coming. And Jesus never turned them away. He never got tired in these moments and just brushed them off. These men are watching him heal Gentiles, Syrians. In fact, take a look at the list. Take a look at them. They brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paraplegics, and he healed them. Isn't that beautiful? So, what's your issue? What's your sickness? What's mine? Religion can't help you. Only Jesus Christ can. And he won't set you free tomorrow. He'll set you free today. The power of his life is here today. Because we're preaching out of the scripture and this is what he did then. And do you think he doesn't do it today? He does it. But, you know, we want to be respectable. We want to have some dignity. We just don't want to spill it all out there that I got problems. You know, we, because we care what people think about us. These people didn't care. They've been sick so long, they didn't care anymore. They just brought, just dragging their leg up, you know, just dragging their leg. Yeah, I ain't got no good leg here. And laid it at his feet. Notice the crowd around, and notice verse 25, in great crowds, probably 50, 100,000, we don't know. Oh, by the way, we don't know, do we? We don't know, do we? There's no numbers given to us. Very few times in Scripture are numbers ever given. We like the number, don't we? We want to know how many you're running down there at whatever. We want to chart the growth. We want to chart the progress. We don't like little stuff. We like big stuff. Because we're Americans, aren't we? Big. We want big. We want to see results. We want to run them down the altar. We want to send our reports into some newspaper to get published. That does, that's old school, I know. Christ is concerned about these little towns. He's concerned about the countryside. He's concerned about the sick folk. He's not worried about the number. He's worried about people. And if it's little, who cares? I asked Lorelai. She got talking about uh, how short she is. And, and she is short for her age. If you put her on a stage with 100 kids her own grade level, she is the shortest kid on there. 
So I said, Lorelai, tell me, tell me about being short. Are there any advantages of being small? She said, well, you know, I got the uh, Tinkerbell part in, in, uh, in Peter Pan. And she said, the other day we got locked out of the house, a family that I was visiting, and I crawled in through the doggy door and unlocked it for the family. Don't worry about big. Don't worry about explosive stuff. Because the gold, silver, and precious metal is what Jesus is doing individually in our lives, no matter if it's two or 2,000. Who cares? These were great crowds, but we don't know the number because the number is not important. It's important of who's doing the work. This crowd was from Galilee, Decapolis, which was an area with 10 cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This was all around the area. They were flooding in, flooding in. Let me share three things, and I'll be finished today about this text. Number one. Jesus looks at his four men during this time and he says this, I am the only one who understands the needs of the human heart. You guys don't. I can touch people because I understand what's going on. And by the way, the fame that spread and these thousands probably that came to him, he was under no deception. They were following him in order to be healed. He was trying to gain their attention in order to proclaim that he was the king. He knew that in a few short years, many that attended these rallies would cry out for his death, and yet he still loved them. Can you imagine being omniscient to know all things, and to know that 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 fellow who had leprosy, who you just healed, will cry out for your death in two, three years, about two years, and yet he loved them. How patient he is with us. How gentle he is with us. How slow he is with us to bring us along. How dense we are. How loving he is. I got saved when I was 19. And I did and said things up to that age. Blasphemous stuff. Rolled out of my mouth. As a teenager. And yet Christ still saved me. Still saved me. Turn to Acts chapter 10. I want to show you something. Acts chapter 10. This is several years after the fact. I would say four or five years after this experience. Acts chapter 10. This is where Peter, this is a a chapter where Peter's eyes are open that the gospel is more than just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. Now I find that Incredibly amazing that he would need that vision. Right out of the gate, Peter's taken on this tour where Jesus ministers to Gentile, and yet prejudice runs deep, and these old trains of thought run deep within us. And so he gets this vision about, well, I won't go into the vision, but he finally shows up at Cornelius' house, and look what he says way down in verse 037. Verse 37, 
He's talking to a group of Gentiles, and God has opened his heart to them. In verse 37, he says, you, you yourselves know what happened throughout Judea. And beginning, notice, beginning from Galilee. He's addressing this very trip right here. And beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed, notice how he refers to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Whenever the gospel writers use the word term Jesus, and then they say of Nazareth, they have a very specific purpose and goal in mind, because Nazareth was despised. He was the, the term, he was the, a Nazarene, it's not a compliment in the first century. It was a slander to his messiahship. And Peter, right back in your face, says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good. Notice, healing all. Jew it. Five years before I saw it, I didn't get it five years ago. I'm getting it now. It took me that long, Peter says, but I finally got it through my thick head that God loves the non-Jew. Healing all who were oppressed to the devil, for God was with him. And says, we were witnesses to all this stuff. None of us understand people. Number two, let me give you the next thing. Jesus says to him, I am the only one who truly loves. We, we do not have in our capacity to love our fellow man and love other people. Human love is always going to fall short. But the love of Christ, when it's operating in a human being, you love everyone. The sick, the diseased, the paraplegic, the epileptic, those who are spastic in life that throw you the curveball. Who when you see them coming down the street, you just kind of move to the other side of the street. You're just praying for a day you don't run into them. The love of God causes you to love them. I asked Lorelai, traveling in the car, I said, give me one word that describes your father. One word that describes your father. And this is what she said. Indestructible. Which I thought was a pretty, well, she's watched him try to hack his finger off and try to cut his leg off. You know, he's, 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 he's you know, and pretty good word for a nine-year-old. The love of God is indestructible. You can't wear it out. You can't wear it down. You can't even diminish it by anything you do. That love for you is infathomable. It is incalculable. You cannot put a measure on it, and it is flowing toward you. It is flowing toward our sicknesses. Love of God. You can't slow it down. He's, he's destructible, I've, I've, but the love of God is not. Number three, and I am the only one who can change lives. Don't even try it. Don't try to talk him into behaving a certain way. You know, there's something in him, something in us that will not be altered by another person or even ourselves. 
It takes the touch and life of Jesus Christ passing by us, reaching out to us, making us whole. Jesus Christ can change a life and change it inside. I am possum hunting these days. I got another one Friday night. Light went off, went out there. I heard him scurrying around the corner. I met him by the air conditioner and unloaded four slugs into him. You say, well, why four slugs? If you've ever shot an armadillo, you just want to make sure they're dead because I'm telling you, that armor, they just get it run off again. I came out in the morning, and there he was, plopped up, had some kind of gut material next to him, and some... (laughs) And it looked like a red heart on the other side. I don't know what it was. It just looked like some red thing. I got it all. I'm telling you, if you ever load one of those up on a shovel, man, that fills a shovel. And you are huffing and puffing back to the woods. I have an important reason for sharing this. You cannot alter an arm. Karen's starting to call me Armadillo Dundee. but You cannot change the heart of an armadillo. They're made to bore and, and get your grubs and worms and tear up your yard. You can't change them. The only thing you can do to an armadillo is kill it. You can't alter them. I can't retrain them. I can't give them a new food supply. I can't set up a little thing and teach them how to be better stewards. Go hunt in the woods. There's lots of woods out there with grubs. Why you got to tear up my backyard? There's something within all human beings that will not yield to anything other than Jesus Christ. You cannot change yourself. You cannot change others. Only Christ can come in and make a difference in your life.